นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสะThe Buddhists are sometimes conf- con- accused of of being uh, very selfish, and I've heard this many times. I, I don't know whether you have, but I many times as a monk, I'm, I'm, people say, "Well, isn't that a very selfish attitude, or isn't Buddhism very selfish?" And and so this evening, I I thought I'd like to address, if I can, this question of. Um, About Buddhism being being a selfish religion, or Buddhist practice, or meditation being selfish. In my own case, I, I can recall when I went to Thailand for the first time in 1973. Uh, I wasn't seeking out organized religion, not at all. I was very interested in meditation, but I was very, very cautious about picking up an, another um, doctrine or you know, system of of practice. But the thing that really struck me in Thailand was just the the quality of relationship that the average person seemed to live with. There was a A sense of friendliness and and ease amongst people that I had never experienced anywhere, and and also the the level of generosity, the spontaneity of the generosity was was not something that I'd ever experienced, and and uh, I, I must say that this was a this is something that really touched me very deeply, and 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 rather diluted some of my assumptions that I had about organized religion. I thought, well, if these people. Are Buddhists? If this is what Buddhism does to people, well, it can't be a bad thing. And I remember a small incident, like one one person. I was sitting at a table having a meal, and I saw this this person there who I knew was given a bag of oranges by somebody who came to visit them, and she was very grateful. She said thank you, and then she immediately divided up a bag of oranges and gave half away to somebody else. And my immediate thought was, "Oh, the person saw her give half the gift away. She's going to be upset." But rather than being upset, her friend was even happier because not only had she given something to somebody, but she'd also given this person a chance to give something away. And it was a, a, a totally different attitude towards relationship and generosity, something that I wasn't at all familiar with. And and then as I started to familiarize myself with the classic traditional Buddhist teachings. I found out that uh, that the Buddha, far from being um, somebody who was self-obsessed, yes, spent a number of years, spent a long time—not just a number of years, a number of lifetimes—in very committed 
enthusiastic investigation and inquiry inwardly but then from the point of his liberation which was uh, supposed to be around the age of 36 when there was no more suffering and no more possibility of suffering for him uh, of course he could have lived an easy life but he didn't live an easy life he continued to live the life of a renunciate celibate monk and for the next well more than 40 years actually out of compassion out of kindness out of consideration out of sensitivity to others committed his whole life to serving and generating the welfare uh, generating well-being for others so this this coming across this rather contradicts this uh, accusation that sometimes leveled at, at, at Buddhists as being selfish and yet I, I can I can see that where it's coming from it's not it's not just to be dismissed there is indeed a real risk that that when we sit down and we start going inwards and looking at ourselves uh, uh, we can become not just suitably interested we can become fascinated or, or even obsessed with ourselves and and getting inner can be a way of actually rejecting the outer world and so as I was saying in the beginning of the meditation that the quality of interest that we follow when we look inwards and we return the light of attention inwardly is not it's not a, a rejection of the outer world but it's, it's really making conscious an interest that's naturally there and we are interested I mean what is that what is our mind anyway I mean this mind it sometimes it's all over the place and and causes me all sorts of trouble and other times the mind is beautifully peaceful and sometimes I can be in, an, in a completely idyllic wonderful environment where everybody's happy and having a good time and yet my mind, my heart is miserable and as a result the experience is thoroughly disagreeable and so what is this mind anyway? or if you suddenly get possessed by some irrational utterly unreasonable fear so what what am I afraid of? you can be surrounded by nice friends and nice people and and you think, well, why am I afraid? Well, actually thinking, why am I afraid, doesn't stop you from being afraid. Mm. I can remember the first opportunities I had for, for public speaking. And like near panic states. I remember they, they would pin the microphone on my chest and I knew all they would be picking up on the microphone would be my heartbeat. Boom, 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 Fortunately, actually, the recording was quite okay and people even liked the talk. As far as I was concerned, it was a panic station. So. And why? It was, I was surrounded by thoroughly lovely people. A room, I can remember one of the first talks I ever gave was in the Buddhist Society in London, and there were about 70 people in the room. And, and uh, Ajahn Sumaita was supposed to have given the talk. And something happened. Oh, I think it was our teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Chah, was becoming increasingly ill. And so he went off to Thailand. And just before he went, he looked down the line and said, Oh, uh, would you do that talk? And looking at me that talk at the Buddhist Society and there's the Venerable Miyokyoni, this great, big, strong, well-known Zen teacher and, and there's uh, this Rinpoche from Tibet and, and then there's some other great teacher there and then there's me and, uh, and 
they were all wonderful people. I know them all. And they're very inspiring teachers. I love and admire them. And, and the 70 people in the room all looked fairly harmless. And yet I was having this panic reaction. And you can try and be reasonable about it and say, well, why am I having this panic reaction? It's not necessary. Just go away. And it doesn't do it, does it? Or anger. You can, you know, you can, some, some people just have a way. You know, they, they seem to know how to just go right for your particular most vulnerable little button and press it. And the passion flares up and it's not a question of how unreasonable this anger is, why did you go away? It's a mystery. And so we are interested, we're naturally and suitably interested in our minds, in our hearts, in our inner reality. And it's suitable to pay attention inwardly. And this is indeed what uh, the Buddhist path of practice and inquiry is about. However, we do have to be careful. And, and when people, if people do accuse us of being selfish, well then it's, I think it's a good, a good thing to stop and question. So well, where are they coming from? One of the images that comes to mind for me, thinking about this, the, the emphasis that the, the Buddha gave to know ourselves, uh, is those of you that um, you, don't, you only have to fly once to know what it's like, you're up there and just before you, the plane takes off, the, the air hostess gets up there with this, this inflatable yellow vest that you pull the cord here and you blow on the whistle and, and so on. And then, and then also there's this mask that you pull down, you know, the mask, the mask's going to drop down um, in front of you. And, and, but the thing they say is, and put on your own mask first. It doesn't matter how much you love your kids. You know, the fact is, if you can't breathe, if you're dead, you're not going to be able to put your kid's mask on. And so they, they make this point very skillfully because they know everybody has got sensitivities around this, but they make this point very strongly, but sensitively, that you've got to put on your own mask first. And, and you, you stop and think, well, of course it's obvious, but there's something within us that, oh, no, no, I must help the person next to me. But the reality is, the actuality is that if you can't breathe, you can't help. No matter how much you love your kid. If you're not breathing, you're not going to be able to help them. And I find that quite a, a helpful image for, for what we're involved with and what the Buddha's teaching is encouraging. It's not saying don't help the people in the chair next to you. Not at all. As I said, the Buddha spent his whole life in there. There are occasions recorded where the Buddha spent a whole range retreat just living off, uh, I think it was like horse food, food that was given to the horses. Now here he was, the prince of a kingdom. He could have had the best of anything, but he, rather than returning back to being a prince, he lived this life of a simple celibate renunciate monk because he believed, he was convinced, this was the best medium for generating blessings for others and, and put up with great austerities and great difficulties to do so. And he encouraged uh, others to do the same. But before that, it is true, yes, there was a long period of self-inquiry and he did give emphasis to really get to know yourself, really get to know yourself. There's a verse in the Dhammapada, verse um, 380, 
Ajahn Chah used to like quoting this verse a lot Atahi Atano Nato Kohi Nato Parosita which translates as oneself is one's own refuge how could it be otherwise oneself is one's own refuge how could it be otherwise actually the the second line literally if we were to translate it literally kohinato parosita translates as who else could be your refuge so oneself is one's own refuge who else could be your refuge and this word refuge nato and also it says the next line is about gato the, it's like a sanctuary or a haven oneself is one's own refuge oneself is one's own haven and then again before the Buddha was dying before the Buddha died just before he died there's a discourse the Mahaparinibbana Sutta where he's talking about be a lamp unto yourself and so there is this emphasis over and over again to pay attention to yourself to get to know yourself but it has to be understood that it's not so as to become preoccupied with ourselves but to see the reality of ourselves so as to forget ourselves actually best known classic Buddhist teaching the Buddha taught non-self anatta anatta now sometimes people who just think about Buddhist practice get a little confused about this how can he say atahiyatano nato oneself is one's own refuge and then he says that all conditions sabe sankara anatta all things are anatta everything is anatta everything is not self how can he what's he talking about here well there is an apparent conflict there but anybody who has made the first steps on meditation practice can see that even when things appear to conflict that doesn't necessarily mean to say they are essentially conflicting they can appear conflicting on one level conceptually conflicting but on another level they can be quite compatible and so in this case where we have this teaching about the Buddha encouraging us to pay attention to ourselves but then he's saying everything is not self really what's what's being encouraged is yes listen to this teaching the Buddha is saying that everything is not self this is this was his realization that there is no substantial solid person that actually all this self-concern is unnecessary it's actually a mistake from his perspective but he wasn't holding this up as a doctrine and said believe in this nobody exists <laughs> he wasn't saying believe in this nobody exists not at all I, I misunderstood him actually I thought that's what he was saying and I tried that and I got into big trouble you know, I, I had to admit that actually I do feel like I exist and then I started getting a feeling for what the Buddha was, was actually saying was pay attention to yourself and get to know this, ex- feel, this feeling this experience that you feel like you are somebody what does this somebodyness feel like what does it feel like to be you what does it feel like to be you and what is this feeling what is the truth of this feeling what is the actuality of this feeling and so the encouragement that we have to pay attention to ourselves to put on our own oxygen mask first is so that we're in a position of 
ultimate or maximum responsibility for ourselves. Because all of us, I'm sure, have had the experience where, whereby um, you know, we think we're coming from one place, and actually, on closer inspection, we, we find we're coming from somewhere else altogether. Our motivation was not what we thought it was. Sometimes you can be caught up in the excitement of the moment, or get confused, or even be a little angry or something, and you know, your, motive, your mind's not very clear, not very mindful, and you can start saying things or doing things, and you can convince yourself that your motivation is such and such, but then later on in the evening when you come to be alone, you're quiet, or maybe the next day when you're restful, and you remember what you're doing, you come to realize that actually my motivation was something altogether different, completely otherwise. You know, we might think that we're being generous and kind and thoughtful and insisting that we are, when really on closer inspection we're being manipulative. So it's not always the case that we know ourselves or that it's even obvious where we're coming from. So part of the Buddha's encouragement to really get to know ourselves is to put us in the position where we can actually be responsible, where we can actually be responsible for ourselves. We like the idea of being responsible, we all think it's a good idea, but to actually be responsible we have to know our intention. We have to know actually our intention, we have to actually know where we're coming from. And so it's, I'm sure again, it's the case that all of us have experienced that you know, somebody accuses us of something unjustly. Maybe they, they say, you, you, what you said was so hurtful, was so insulting. And maybe they did feel genuinely hurt or insulted or dismissed or put down. But if we know our intention, we can come back to that. I recently had the experience of somebody who I'd known for quite a number of years in recent time had, had become a little bit distant and I hadn't seen much of them for a while and and then more recently I started receiving a few letters from them which were were very curious letters and and uh, mentioning all sorts of things that had happened and, and mentioning a change in attitude which I didn't recognize at all and I hadn't seen this person for a while but it was quite clear that they they had a lot of bad feelings about me and were starting telling me about them and the, the things that I had done that had hurt them and and so on and so forth and uh, and it was a little surprising to receive it in an email but that's how they chose to do it and anyway more recently there was an opportunity for that for us to actually talk face to face and so I invited this person in and and we sat down and I said well you know what about us anyway what's going on and so then they started telling me all the times that I had betrayed them and and you know, dismissed them and patronized them and they didn't they said this and I said that and so on and meant this and and it was okay to actually listen to it and uh, I can understand why they wanted to say it but as I listened to it I I recognized that really it didn't belong to me and it was okay to listen to it I, I didn't have to get angry at them I didn't have to get upset and say how can you accuse me of a thing like that after all I've done for you and I had actually done quite a lot for them. But I, uh, it wasn't necessary because I could check my motivation and the things that I did. I mean, maybe I wasn't as uh, skilled as they would have liked me to be, but I wasn't the person that they thought I was, not at all. And I, re I reflected on this occasion and thought, well, this is the benefit of practice. A few years ago, somebody like that 
who I had spent a lot of time with and had been very supportive of, had come to me with these kind of accusations, I would have had a lot of trouble listening to that. A lot of trouble listening to that. But because of the the way practice works, when we're looking inwardly, getting to know ourselves honestly, we get to see our intention, then you can just ask yourself, well, you know, what was my intention? And you can ask yourself a straight question, you get a straight answer. And so that's part of getting to know ourselves, part of getting to know our intention. Because when we know our intentions, we're free. We can actually trust ourselves and if we make mistakes and we do follow unwholesome intentions, we can actually know that was wrong. That was wrong. That was inappropriate. And we can know it and we can admit it. But until we know ourselves on that level, um, we can get very confused, we can get very disoriented, we can get very upset about things that we don't actually need to get upset about. A few days ago, spontaneously in, in, in a meditation, I remembered it something that happened in Thailand many years ago, like 20 years ago, and I had hardly ever remembered it. And But it was to do with intention, and I, I was rather pleased to remember it actually, because in my first years, the very first years as a monk, we have, we have all these rules, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rules, and you're not even allowed to hurt a mosquito or an ant or whatever, and you know, I'd be walking down my meditation path and I'd look around and see that I've walked on an ant and, oh, I've killed an ant, I've broken my precepts and I'd get into a terrible state, a, a real fit over having broken my precepts. And, and the, but the rule clearly says intentionally harming or intentionally killing is not to be done. And I had intended to kill this ant. And, but there was just a, a kind of habit of, of not really seeing where responsibility lay. And so the rule said this, and so I projected out into the rule all the power, all the responsibility. And the reality is I've killed this ant. The rule says you're not allowed to kill ants. And so I'm wrong. That was the, that was the neurotic equation that my mind made. But fortunately, as the years went by, again, one was one started to just see that you don't have to follow these condition patterns. And there was a situation where I was living in a monastery way up in the very north of Thailand, a place area called Chiang Rai, Ampua Pan it was, and it was a, a new branch monastery, and Ajahn Kun was the name of the teacher, and it was really very, very poor, and right out in the middle of nowhere and in those days, and, and I had a very simple cootie that I was living in, kind of bamboo floor and thatched roof, and yeah, right out in the sticks, you know, and the trees and the bushes, and, on. and I remember, what I remembered in this meditation was how one night... I had, uh, because I only had a blanket on this bamboo floor, I didn't sleep very well, and anyway, I was restless. And one night I rolled over, and I rolled over and landed fair square on top of a scorpion, and right in the middle of my back, it stung me, right in the middle of my back. And I jumped up and grabbed, put my hand on the back, and then it stung me on my finger as well. And it got me twice, this thing. And my heart is, I mean, really going, and the pain is building up in my armpits, and I think, oh, it's two o'clock in the morning, I... You know, I can't get to the hospital. I said, this is it. I'm going to, you know, I mean, scorpions carry a symbolic sort of power. And actually, I don't think an adult dies from a scorpion bite. You know, but, the, you know, even then, the rational thoughts didn't come into it. There was fear. And I was, I was unsettled. I survived the night. 
next morning on Arms Round, somebody was asking me a question to do with translation, and so it wasn't anything to do with a scorpion bite. I, it was completely unrelated. So I came back from Arms Round, and I got back to my cutie, and I reached up to get a book from the shelf. And as I put the book down, there was this scorpion again, just going to get me again. And I just threw the whole book out the window. I wasn't into being mindful or practicing loving kindness or anything like that. But I just the book went out the window. It was desperate, but it was it was a painful sting the night before, and I didn't want another one. And I heard the book kind of land firmly because the cootie was off the ground, you know. So it was quite a drop. And this is my precious dictionary. And so anyway, I go around outside, and, and there's the dictionary there. And I think, oh, well, I don't know where the scorpion is now, so I. I don't know whether I kicked it or I poked it with a stick or whatever and turned it over and there it was underneath splat, one dead scorpion. And you know, I didn't mind. (laughs) 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 I I had no intention to kill a scorpion. Now, there there was a time when I would have given myself a lot of flack over what had happened, but with getting to know ourselves, with actually getting to know ourselves, you can start to see, well, what really matters. And the Buddha gave the teaching on karma, and basically karma is intention. It's, it's not what you do that matters, but how you do it. It's not what you do, but where the motivation behind it is. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about what you've done. It matters, it matters where you've come from, what your motivation is. And, and this is terribly important on all sorts of levels in our life. You know, in very tragic circumstances where there's been suicide. And if we don't know our motivation, if we've been involved with somebody and we're not clear about our intention and things we've said and done, we can really get dragged into hell. And so this encouragement to pay attention to ourselves is not to become self-obsessed or overly concerned with ourselves, but to get to recognize ourselves in a way that frees us. So, atahi atanonato, you are your own refuge. If you pay attention to yourself, then you actually feel safe. If you pay attention in the right way. The feeling of safety doesn't come from getting the best insurance policies doesn't come from having a lot of money, it doesn't come from being famous. There are a lot of famous, wealthy people around with very good insurance policies, but they don't necessarily feel very safe. They don't feel well, at ease, because they don't know themselves. In reflecting on this theme, I'm reminded of something that great German Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said once, uh, as I read the translation anyway, I don't read German, but he was commenting on that verse in the Bible where Jesus says, if you want to follow me first, you must deny yourself. And Meister Eckhart was commenting that this doesn't mean just giving up a few of your favorite things for Lent which is sometimes how this sort of comment is interpreted. To deny yourself, first he says you have to go inwards to find yourself. 
And when you go inwards and you find yourself, then you let yourself go. And when you let yourself go, you find God. And that was my straight cards. Way of talking about it. And I, I, as I say, I don't read the German and I, I can't speak as a Christian, but it sounds very much like uh, what our teaching is talking about, that where we turn the light of attention inwards and we get to see this me, this me, at that point, at that point when we meet ourselves, that's the point, and that's the only point, we can let go of ourselves. Now, Buddhists tend not to say what comes next. We, we, we tend not to talk about God and other things. Yeah. But what we do talk about, what the Buddha did talk about, was the suffering that we experience in our life, the disappointment, the frustration, the despair, the hopelessness, the sadness, that is all mine, you know, my sadness, my frustration, my disappointment. I spoke, actually, on this theme uh, recently um, on learning how to not take ourselves so seriously. And I really wanted the talk recorded. And then after the evening was over, I asked the person responsible for recording the talk how the recording went. They tried and they said, oh, obviously the machine was broken because it didn't record. I said, the machine was broken. You mean you didn't push the right switch, did you? Well, eventually he came around to saying, yes, I'm sorry about that. And but it was interesting, reflecting on that. Uh, yeah, my reaction in that moment was, I just gave a talk on not taking yourself too seriously. <laughs> I can't afford to have any sort of heedless reaction right here. <laughs> because that's, that's what we're talking about, that... I'm disappointed, actually, you didn't record that talk. But how do we relate to that, I'm disappointed? How do we relate to that? Do we have to be defined by that feeling? I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed continually. I'm disappointed by life. I mean, just going to Edinburgh today, I'm disappointed. I mean, those people don't look happy. Shopping bags, shopping bags, shopping bags. They've got so many shopping bags, they can hardly walk, most of them. A <laughs> lot of them, really. And, but they don't look happy. And that's disappointing. And you know, I personally, I am disappointed pretty much most of the time. But I'm not. I'm not depressed about life. And there was a time when I know disappointment was. I found very depressing. It was like salt in a wound. Just to go into Newcastle State Station and smell the fumes of tobacco and and stuff that people put on their bodies and. And, and, and the, the, it was so vulgar. And, and I would just fall into this, kind of my heart would sink. And I'd be on my way to go and give a Dhamma talk somewhere. And well, these days I notice that I can still feel that I don't like the smell of tobacco and the sight of people despairing on the side of the street and, and the newspaper sensationalism. And I can, I can feel my disappointment with these things, but the way that one feels disappointment is changing. So I feel this is worth this is worth reflecting on that the encouragement the Buddha gave us to pay attention to ourselves, be a light unto yourself, is certainly not to become self-obsessed. 
but it's to get to know yourself because only when we know ourselves only when we know what this experience of selfness is can we let go of ourselves only when we know the feeling of I feel disappointed in terms of reality can we be not defined by the feeling of I feel disappointed you can feel disappointed and it can be absolutely okay you can feel sad and I know relationships that I have some relationships that I have family relationships the real turning point in my relationship with my family was when I realized that actually there's nothing wrong with feeling sad prior to that I used to think that feeling sad was a failure when I feel sad I feel sad and there's definitely something wrong because I'm feeling sad but is it possible to feel sad and to be peaceful at the same time? only possible as far as I can see if we're willing to really look at this feeling of I am sad and so where we look inwards is not to become self-obsessed but to see the experience of self for what it really is sadness is just one aspect of my being disappointment is only one thing that's happening if disappointment was the only thing that was happening in my reality if disappointment was the only thing that was happening I couldn't even know disappointment but disappointment happens and I can know disappointment who is it that knows disappointment? if disappointment's me how can I know disappointment? if sadness is really who and what I am if all I am is sad or all I am is greedy wanting something wanting if all I am is somebody is desire if that's me how can I know desire? But there is that also, that dimension of my being that knows desire, that knows wanting. And can actually note it with a little practice, you can actually notice wanting, they're wanting. I can feel wanting, I can feel the energy in my belly starting to rise up and sort of create a kind of an ache. The aching of, I want a holiday in Corfu. <laughs> I don't actually, but... Another Greek island would be okay, but not Corfu. <laughs> That's just an example, you know, whatever. You, know, you can see a nice poster in the shop and a nice sun, and you've got this weather that we've got at the moment. You think sunshine, sea, relaxation. Mm. Or you can think of another object of desire. But if it comes up and you're mindful, you're present for it, you're inner, you're with your inner experience not just out there proliferating about well can I get it can I not get it what will it be like if I do get it what will it be like if I don't get it and all that outgoing mental proliferation if we're inner with the experience of wanting we can actually notice it wanting wanting to go to Corfu I want to go to Corfu I want is even simpler and then if we're really skilled, we keep on just wanting. Wanting. There's nothing wrong with wanting. Wanting is just so. Wanting is just wanting. And we can actually want and be peaceful at the same time. And if you've been through you know, such an experience, you know how, how freeing, how liberating it is to actually be in a long enough until the relationship 
with this activity undergoes a fundamental shift. We don't have to fight all these conditions. We don't have to fight ourselves, what we call ourselves. We don't have to fight ourselves. All we have to do is get to know ourselves. Now sometimes people are so tired of fighting themselves they say, well, they've got to love themselves. And so they go around having perfume candles burning while they're having a bath and, and making self-affirmations about I am strong and loving and I am a good person and, and looking in the mirror and giving themselves smiles and, and then buying themselves nice clothes and making loving gestures to themselves, trying to love themselves because they're so tired of hating themselves. There might be some therapeutic value in that to some degree, but essentially it doesn't change the pattern, which is that actually we don't know ourselves. We don't really know what the experience of meanness is about. Now, I don't mean to be dismissive of, of, of the, the activities, the exercises that, that can be very skillfully taken up to redress a really serious imbalance. And sometimes you know, people embark on a, on a spiritual path and they, they get to realize, they get to experience that this, this me, this self, is rather twisted and is very skillful that before they go too far down the line of, of potentizing their spiritual powers and building up tremendous concentration and studying all sorts of teachings on transcendental realities and so on and so forth, actually it can be very skillful to just learn to be a little bit more happy. You just learn to be a little bit more happy. And, and if that means going to do some therapy or do some self-affirmations, whatever's needed to learn to find some some personal contentment is very skillful, can be very skillful. However, from the reality perspective, or from the perspective of Dhamma, the encouragement is that even being a contented personality leaves us vulnerable. If we still hold ourselves too tightly, too seriously, take ourselves too seriously, then we're vulnerable. Conditions can be agreeable for a while, they can be agreeable for quite a long while, but then the very least old age is going to come along, sickness is going to come along, and eventually death will come along. And of course death is the, the great disagreeable circumstance, unless we've prepared ourselves. Unless we've prepared ourselves by being sufficiently inner and aware that we get to know ourselves. As Joseph Campbell said, I don't know if you know Joseph Campbell, a wonderful um, mythologist, is that what you'd call him? Anthropologist, mythologist, great guy died a few years ago. There's a wonderful series of, of interviews with Bill Moyer, I think it is, um, an American interviewer, and these videos and tapes are available. And at the end of this series, a very extended series of interviews with, with Joseph Campbell, um, Bill Moyer got to know him very well, and uh, Joseph Campbell was very old, and, and, and Bill Moyer says to Joseph Campbell, very respectfully and quietly, he says, but but Joe, he says, he says, you're getting old and, and there will be an end and death will come. And after all the study of all the myths and the 
the work and the introspection, the contemplation that you've done with your life, your life of contemplation, what do you make of it? And Joseph Campbell just looks and says, it's expectable. It's expectable. And there's this wonderful joy in his voice, the way he says, it's expectable. And the reality is that actually very soon after that last interview he died. And there's a wonderful example of somebody who had prepared themselves, not by avoiding themselves, not by promoting themselves, but by getting to know themselves for what they really are. And so this is the encouragement the Buddha gave was, was not to deny ourselves. The Buddha did that, you know, for years he, he denied himself, he denied any pleasure he possibly could imagine even food, even air. He tried to deny himself air for a while and until he was nearly dead and denied himself all the comforts and that didn't work. Before that, for 29 years, he'd gratified every desire. He'd, he'd indulged in himself. Everything he wanted, he'd given himself. As a prince, he, everything was available. So he knew these two extremes very well, but what he came to realize was there is a possibility of living between these two extremes or beyond these two extremes of not indulging in ourself, not avoiding or denying ourself, but getting to know ourselves. Being so present, so acutely, accurately receptive to ourselves in the moment as we meet ourselves that we see beyond ourselves. That's the point. And from that point onwards, we can be, be a benefit to others. Now saying that, it might sound like the Buddhists teach, well, you've got to purify yourself, get rid of all your greed, aversion, and delusion, become enlightened before you're any use to anybody else. Now that's, not, that's, that's a little oversimplification. It's a gross oversimplification. The reality is that, that actually by paying attention to ourselves and getting to know ourselves for what we are, we can learn to hold ourselves more lightly, not take ourselves so seriously, let go of ourselves, and then genuinely, spontaneously pay attention to others. But at the same time, there's also the encouragement to really pay attention to others, like the cultivation of loving-kindness, where, where one specifically generates in the mind the image of others and holds in the heart the feeling, the feeling of well-wishing and for oneself yes notice how the the the, the classical uh, presentation of the meditation on loving kindness is uh, may I be well may I be well may I be well and to say that with may I be well and really mean it because when we can really say may I be well and really mean it and really feel it, then we can also, may they be well. May they be well. Somebody you care about, somebody you're close to, and then somebody neutral, somebody you don't you know, the postman or the bus driver or that person crossing the street. And you see them as, a, as another being who suffers and Sensing their life, their being, feeling this feeling with them. May they be well. 
and really generating that will wishing and then working around until we get really skilled we can actually hold up those we really dislike people we've got a real grudge against and still see if we can carry this feeling around to may they be well may they be free from suffering seeing this as another being who fears disappointment doesn't want sadness doesn't want the suffering we experience and to feel with them and to wish them freedom from suffering so there is this conscious encouragement to well-wishing for others but there is I think it needs to be said that there's an emphasis a priority on getting to know ourselves these two things go together yes but but the priority the Buddha said is get to know ourselves put on our own oxygen mask first so then we can help others thank you very much for your attention Mm -hmm.